You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you take that and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one today before you leave. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship. You'll find some stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. And that's our gift to you. We hope you'll start using that Bible even today in worship as we look at this passage together. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? To get us started, I want to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. A short passage. But it packs quite a punch. So listen carefully to these words from God's Word. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So if you uh, have signed up for our emails... You know what's coming today. You were warned about it. So why don't we all just take a deep breath right here at the beginning. Today's the final week in this series that we've been in for a couple of months now, Deathly Devices. We've been thinking about how our devices lure us into, incite within us, what is called the seven capital vices. But before we get into our vice for the day, I want to toss out for brief discussion the question that I have gotten from many of you throughout this series. And that question is, should I delete my social media accounts? Many of you have asked that. You might have noticed that this past week, Faith Church deactivated our social media accounts. In the upcoming week, the prayer page is going to disappear. We're going to be announcing in the next couple of days a new method for you to submit prayer requests and see the prayer requests of others. So don't worry, you'll still have an opportunity to do that. But for now, we've deactivated our Facebook, our Instagram. I don't yet know if this will be a permanent thing. But I am convinced that we ought to at least slow down. Our elders ought to have some serious conversations about social media We should think deeply, even if in the end not differently, about this subject. I try to keep the passion of my opinion consistent with the depth of my study. And I have to confess that in the past, I really have not spent a whole lot of time researching, studying deeply the social internet. So I had some vague ideas. I spoke about it every now and then with just kind of a general cautionary tone, but not with the forthrightness that I've had in this series, right? And that's because I've spent several months now doing this deep dive into this subject. And I'm pretty convinced that it's not as simple as we think. It's not as simple as we've assumed. It's not as simple as I assumed. Let me give you a couple of analogies to help you see what I'm getting at. And the first one will tee up the ball for the direction we're heading today. Would we give a faith church t-shirt 
to a porn star to wear in one of his or her films? Of course not. Of course not. And why not? Because we would not want our church to be affiliated with the sex industry. There's something morally problematic about the medium itself. And so we would draw a line. We would say, no, we absolutely will not do that because of the medium. Now, that's a pretty extreme example, right? So let me dial it down a bit with the second analogy. A common argument goes something like this. Social media is like paint. And you can use paint to graffiti a city and ruin everything. But you can use that same paint to paint a beautiful home. To paint beautiful things. It's what you do with the paint that matters, right? That's the common argument. But what if it's lead-based paint? What if the paint itself is toxic? Would you then continue to paint your home with it? Would you paint your home and try to make beautiful things with something you know is toxic? And even if you did, wouldn't the toxicity warp the beauty of the thing painted? These are the types of questions that I'm convinced we need to at least hit the pause button and ask. We shouldn't just jump in and use social media simply because everyone else does. We need to think about these things. So for a while at Faith Church, we've hit the pause button. I'm not saying it's going to necessarily be a permanent deletion of everything. We're hitting pause. We're going to think. We're going to pray. We're going to ask those types of questions. Perhaps you should do something similar on a personal or family level. Many of you have noticed that personally, I deactivated my social media about six months ago on January the 1st of this year, as a matter of fact. I knew I was going to be preaching this series. I wasn't quite sure when yet, but I knew that I could not lead you where I myself am not willing to go. So I knew that if I was even going to call for a temporary pause or anything like that, I needed to be willing to do that myself. So I just did a little experiment. Now, I'll be honest with you, I went into this experiment with two great fears. I didn't want to deactivate my social media at first for two reasons. First, I was afraid that I would lose information. How am I going to know what's happening in the world? Like many of you, I was sort of an information glutton. And then second, I had a fear. Am I going to lose my ability to speak in helpful ways, speak into other people's lives? Am I going to lose some of my influence? Fear of information, fear of influence. Well, I'm happy to say that over the last six months, I've found other ways, better ways of getting information. And I'll leave it to you to decide if I've lost any of my influence. But I kept a little journal little running list of observations, things I noticed about myself in these past six months. I want to share a few of them with you. They're not all pretty, I have to warn you. But here's some things I learned about myself during this little social media experiment. I noticed that without social media, I'm more present with my family. I'm more reflective and productive. I spend less time thinking about myself, less pride, less concern for the bits of my existence that the whole world simply must know. Share this, post that. I spend less time thinking about other people in a negative way, less envy, less anger, less unforgiveness, less lust. Yeah, that's right, I'm a human just like you. 
I spend less time shopping online. I'm more content. I spend more time on problems I can help solve rather than fixating on issues that are far, far away. And I spend more time getting to know people, real people, rather than drawing conclusions based on their social media posts. I've learned a lot about myself in the last six months. Should you delete your social media? I don't know. Maybe. But I will say this. It's probably a good idea to do a similar experiment. Try deactivating for a while, just a season, maybe over the summer, the months of June and July. See what you notice about yourself. See what your spouse notices about you. See what your children notice about you. Let's talk about the last vice. We've covered six of the seven. Vainglory, envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, and gluttony. Today we're going to talk about the last one, lust. We'll travel this now familiar road. We'll look first at the vice itself. Then we'll think about our devices, how they incite it. And finally, some spiritual practices to counter its power. So first, the vice itself. Now, to rightly understand lust, we must think about what the Bible teaches us about sex. What God himself thinks about sex. And I'm going to be very candid with you and tell you straight up, God loves sex. Did you know that? Maybe no one has ever said that to you. God loves sex. Of course he does. He's the inventor of it. He's the creator of it. It's not the case that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were in the garden naked and unashamed when one day she tripped and he fell. And with joyful excitement, they were like, well, how about that? Look what we created. Look what we figured out. No. God invented sex. He created it. Therefore, he loves it. It has a good place in his plan. Look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. My paraphrase, Adam and Eve have lots of sex and rule the world. Whoever said Christians are killjoys, they don't know the Bible very well. Because this is straight from God's word. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. God is the creator of sex. Now, when you understand that, it will help you see that the two most prevalent ways of thinking about sex in our day, the two most prevalent ways, both are wrong. There's a ditch on both sides of this road. On the one side is the view that we might call the churchy view of sex, that sex is bad. We shouldn't talk about it. We should pretend like we don't do it. Children just, you know, magically appear. We certainly should not be talking about it in church, of all places, because it's something dirty. That's the churchy view that sex is bad. But if God is the creator of sex, and he is, then there must be a proper place for it in his plan for the world. There must be a God-glorifying sex that we must talk about. 
We can't let the whole world talk about sex while the church remains quiet. Not if it's God's invention. Come on, people. So that view, that doesn't line up with Scripture. Now, on the other side of the road, the other ditch, is what we might call the worldly view that sex is God. Sex is not bad, but neither is sex God. Our world creates sex, thinks of sex as something that is what we should worship, chase, cherish. It's the ultimate experience. And therefore, you should just explore it in limitless ways. But if God is the creator of sex, then sex cannot be this supreme, all-powerful thing. It has a creator, a designer. It has a place and a purpose. God gives the gift of sex within a specific context. That's the biblical view. Sex is not bad. Sex is not God. It's not dirty. It's not divine. It's not sinful. It's not salvation. What then is it? It's good. It's a God-given gift with a God-given context. And that context is one man and one woman committed exclusively to each other for life. Marriage. Marriage. Now that begs the question, why would God restrict sex to this particular context? Why would he do that? Contrary to what many people think, it's not because God has such a low view of sex. It's not as if God is saying, I really don't want you to do this at all, but if you simply must... If you just can't control yourself, then only in this one context. No, it's not because he has such a low view of sex. It's because he has such a high view of it. As the creator and the designer, the inventor of sex, God knows the power of it. His intention for sex is that it is the God-given way to give your entire self to another person. Sure, it's a physical thing, absolutely, but it's more than that. Is holistic union. For those of you who are married, remember to that day long ago when you said your wedding vows. You stood in front of God and all of those witnesses. You looked into the eyes of your spouse. And in essence, you said, I am yours. I am yours. Every time you have sex with your spouse, you are saying, I am all yours. I am still yours. I am only yours. That is God's design for sex. It's a physical union, yes, but it's more than that. It's a holistic union. Now, when we understand that, then and only then are we ready to talk about the sexual sin known as lust. Look again at what Jesus said in the passage that I read earlier. Matthew chapter 5 he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The biblical requirement is pretty simple to understand. If you're single, single men and women, then you are to be absolutely chaste, both physically and mentally. If you're married, then you are to be absolutely faithful both physically and mentally. Jesus points out here that physical faithfulness alone is not enough. The mind matters. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Now, we need to be clear about what we're talking about here when we use this word lust. Lust is in the man, for example, who sees a beautiful woman and begins to desire her in sexual ways. Lust is not in the man who sees a beautiful woman and then bounces his eyes elsewhere. Lust is looking with intent, Jesus says. It's thought plus inclination. Lust lingers. Lust lingers. Now, Jesus goes on in just a moment to tell us what to do about the lust in our hearts. But first, I want to give you a way to think about this. Using what we learned earlier about what the Bible says about sex, that sex is a giving of the whole self to another, I want to help you understand kind of a working definition of lust. Lust wants to separate what God has joined together. This is the problem with it. It wants to separate what God has joined together. Sex, like I said, is the most powerful God-created way to give your entire self to another human being. Lust seeks to unite physically, but not fully. Physically, but not fully. It therefore reduces a person to an apparatus for pleasure. The problem is not sexual desire. You must understand this. Students, you must understand this. The problem is not sexual desire. God gave you that sex drive. He gave you that sex drive to drive you toward marriage. He gave men an especially strong sex drive to drive us toward marriage and to ensure the continuation of the human race until his plan for the world is complete. It's a good thing. The sexual desire is not the problem. It's the desire for that physical pleasure only or apart from a whole life commitment. God's design is the giving of the whole self. Lust says, I don't want a person. I want an apparatus for pleasure. Lust dehumanizes. Think about it. This is why it would never work to have a strip club, a gentleman's club, where the exotic dancers use their real names. That'd be the fastest way to clear the whole place out. If the announcer started using the real name of the dancer and giving a little bit of the person's background, this is Susie. Her mom was an alcoholic. She has two children. One day she hopes to go to college and become a physical therapist. The entire place would be empty. They use fake names. Why? Because that's what lust needs. It dehumanizes. It's not interested in a person. It's interested in an apparatus for pleasure. That's the problem with lust. It's not sexual desire itself. It's the desire for something physical only, apart from the whole life commitment. Now Jesus tells us next what to do about the lust in our own hearts. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. That's pretty harsh. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus is not talking about literal self-mutilation here. He can't be because that wouldn't really solve the problem. A man can cut off his hand and still struggle with lust. So that can't be the point. He's speaking figuratively here. 
The point he's making is that we must be prepared to take even desperate measures. Desperate measures. Eliminating, removing, cutting off whatever it is that is leading us to lust. And notice as well that he uses the image of the right hand, the right eye. The right side is the side of importance, the side of power. Jesus is saying you must be ready to get rid of even your most prized possessions if they are leading you to lust. You must be willing to cut off that subscription. You must be willing to cut off social media. Whatever it is that is inciting that lust within your heart. So now let's think about those devices. We need to. It's going to be uncomfortable, but we need to do it. How do our devices incite this seventh vice of lust? Well, first of all, there's what I like to call the general pornification of our culture that has happened. Did you know that in 1967, the most popular television show in the world was The Andy Griffith Show? In 2017, at the top of the list was Game of Thrones. In 50 years, we have gone from Mayberry to full frontal nudity. Makes you wonder where it will be 50 years from now. Some social media platforms allow explicit, what we would call traditional pornographic content. Every social media platform allows sexually suggestive images. Lyrics, song lyrics in our day, are hyper-sexualized. There is a general pornification of our culture that we have to be aware of. But the greatest and most specific problem is internet pornography. Internet pornography is affecting adults, both inside the church and outside. It's destroying the way we view other people. It's destroying relationships. Internet pornography has also become the primary sexual educator of young people. Now, internet pornography is different, very, very different from its predecessors in three ways that I want to pinpoint this morning. It's more available, it's more neurologically powerful, and it's more extreme. Think about each of these with me. What's been called the three A's of the internet drives consumption here. Accessibility, affordability, and anonymity. Think about it. There was a time in the past where a person had to leave his or her home, drive to a specialty store, and interact with another human being to get access to a pornographic video. Those days are long gone. It's far more accessible now. There's no need to get out and go anywhere. There's no need to run the risk of seeing someone you might know. It's just a few clicks away. Finding pornography online is easier than finding the local weather forecast. Just a few clicks. It's accessible. The second A is affordability. Large amounts of internet pornography, cheap or free. If you can afford the internet, you can afford pornography. And then the third A, anonymity. Again, you don't have to see anyone. No one will see you. 
Anonymity is where sin flourishes. And anonymity is one of the greatest lies of the internet. Friends, listen to me. There is no such thing as anonymity. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. One day, we will all stand before the Lord. All of our secrets will become known. There is no such thing as anonymity. It's only a matter of time. So this is the first great problem with internet pornography compared to previous versions of pornography. It's much more available. Much more available. Secondly, it's more neurologically powerful. Neuroscientists have demonstrated that richer forms of media, like high-def, hyper-realistic media, richer forms of media affect especially the male brain. This explains in part why internet pornography is so much more addictive than earlier versions of it. It's far more neurologically powerful. And third and finally, it's more extreme, more violent, more deviant. Clinicians make a distinction between decisions that we make in what they call a hot status versus a cold status. The problem with internet pornography is that there are endless, limitless options, pop-ups, advertisements that come to us while we're already in a hot state. And that causes us to view things that we would not otherwise view. It causes us to view these deviant behaviors when in a cold state, we would be very quick to say, no way, that's sick. But in that hot state, with those limitless possibilities right in front of you, we find ourselves going down paths we never dreamed were possible. It becomes more and more violent. It becomes more and more deviant, more and more extreme. And this is one of the other great lies of the internet and internet pornography in particular. It promises to satisfy desire, but all the while it's killing it. Studies tell us, surprisingly, that the majority of people who struggle with internet pornography are married men. Not single men, not teenagers. Married men. And what happens is these married men become hooked on internet pornography and they're drawn down this path of more extreme and more extreme images and it gets to the point to where they don't even find their own wife attractive. They're no longer turned on, aroused by their own wife because of these extreme images that they've been feeding themselves again and again and again. Long, long ago in 1956, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to an American reader named Keith Masson addressing the topic of lust. Now, this is long before internet pornography. This is 1956. But what Lewis says speaks with precision to our moment. Listen to this sort of long-lost letter of his. Lewis says, for me, the real evil of lust would be that it takes an appetite 
which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren. And it turns this desire back inward. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. See, when we go down this path, we discover eventually that real life and a real wife can't compare with fantasy. It's a dangerous road. Our world tells us that pornography is something normal, harmless, maybe even hip. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. But there is hope. There is hope. I want to end this morning in this series on a note of hope. You can fight against lust. You can fight for your marriage. I want to show you how. Spiritual practices to counter lust power. Let me give you three of them in closing. Two for everyone and one for the married couples in particular. The first practice, the first step is confession. Confession of sin. If you have been struggling with lust, if you have been struggling with pornography, confess your sin to God. Lest you think you're too far gone, your sins are too vile, remember the story of King David. David, a man after God's own heart, envied another man's wife, killed that man to get him out of the way so that he could take the woman he wanted. In his lust, in his pride, in his power, he did whatever he wanted to do to take the woman he wanted. David completely turned his back on God. And then one day, someone confronted him about his sin. And in that moment, David realized the mistake he had made. And he confessed. He confessed it all. He wrote what is one of the most powerful prayers of confession ever written. It's Psalm 51. Go read it. That's David's confession of sin. You're not too far gone. Your sin is not too vile. When you confess your sin, even your sexual sin to God, believer, He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But when I say confession here, 
I don't want you to merely confess your sin to God. Definitely do that. Start with that. Also confess your sin to someone else. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ, someone you know well, someone you trust. You won't get through this on your own. You won't get through this on your own. You need someone to help you, someone to hold you accountable, someone to pray with you, to ask you the tough questions. Confess your sin to God and you will find forgiveness. Confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ, the body of Christ, and you will find support. You need both. So it begins with confession. Second, accountability. And by accountability, I want us to think about both boundaries and alerts or alarms that will be sounded when those boundaries have been crossed. First, we need boundaries. You need to set boundaries for your children, parents, and married couples, students, whoever. You need to think about what boundaries you're setting for yourselves. One of the ones that we have in our house is no devices behind closed doors. It's pretty simple. No devices behind closed doors. Think about the boundaries you can set for yourself and for your own family. If there's a time of the day, late at night, for example, when you're more susceptible, see that. Be aware of it. Set some boundaries there. But then you also need alerts, alarms to be sounded. Here I always recommend an accountability software called Covenant Eyes. If you've been around Faith Church for any number of years, you've heard me talk about this. We have Covenant Eyes on every device in our home, every phone, every tablet, every computer. When you sign up for Covenant Eyes, you assign an ally. For me, that ally is my wife, Jamie. She gets a weekly report of every site I have visited. There would be no way for me to go to a pornographic site without my wife knowing about it. It's impossible. It's a boundary. It's an important one. But there's also the same thing we do with our boys. You may be thinking, gosh, Dylan, you're, you know, you're the pastor. Your sons, absolutely my sons. They're sinners just like all of us. We all need these boundaries in place. So think about that. What boundaries can you set? What sorts of accountability structures can you put in place here in your personal life and in your home? Those are the two for everybody. Now, one for the married couples. Intimacy with your spouse. Let's talk about this for a minute. I said at the beginning that God loves sex. In the context of marriage, God does not merely encourage sex. He strongly commands it. Did you know that? He strongly commands it. I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The two have become one. Paul goes on to say, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, I've met with a lot of couples over the years who have struggled with intimacy. And let me say this, I think every marriage struggles with intimacy at some time or another. 
those who pretend like they don't are often the ones who are having the greatest struggle. Every marriage goes through a season where you're going to struggle here. I've met with a lot of couples over the years and listened to a lot of excuses of why they think they're so physically and emotionally separate from each other. I've never heard a single couple say to me, you know what, it's because we're praying so much. We've just... (laughs) We've stopped having sex because we spend so much time in prayer. Never once have I heard that one come up. It's usually something like, he only cares about work. She only cares about the children. It's never once been about an abundance of prayer. And notice as well that Paul says, even if you are going to cool things down for a while to pray, make sure you come together again. Because if you don't, Satan will tempt you. If in your marriage, day after day, month after month go by, where you as a married couple are going to bed back to back, then there is room for Satan in that bed, and there is room for Satan in that marriage. This is what God's Word is teaching us. God not only encourages sex in the context of marriage, he strongly commands it. Maybe it's time for some of you to rekindle the romance, the intimacy in your marriage. But how? How can you do that? It begins with communication. You must talk to each other. Every couple goes through this at some time or another. Every couple. We've gone through it. Every couple does. You must talk to each other about it. Be honest, be truthful, and be gentle. And then together, begin prioritizing each other. One very practical step you can take toward that is build the habit of a weekly date night. Build the habit of a weekly date night. Not monthly, not quarterly, Many couples err thinking, you know what, we're going to save up money, we're going to work, 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 and then once a quarter we're going to go away for this great extravagant getaway. No, weekly, date night, every couple needs that. You need that oasis, that break from the busyness of life. You need to be fully present with each other. The date night does not have to be expensive. It could be as simple as going for a walk on the beach. It does not have to be expensive. When your children are very young, you'll have to get creative here. But I'm a firm believer that every couple ought to prioritize that weekly date night habit. Now, a quick word to the ladies and a quick word to the men, and we'll be done. Ladies, I'm going to speak honestly to you for a minute. Your maternal instincts will kick in. It's part of the way God's wired you. It's a good thing. Your maternal instincts will kick in, and you will think to yourself, it's more important for me to be present with my children than to spend the night with my my husband. Remember that you're a wife first and then a mother. And remember that ultimately, one day, you want to send your children out into the world with a healthy understanding of marriage. And one of the ways you do that is by modeling that healthy marriage for them now. So push against that maternal instinct. And remember, you need that weekly date night. So that's for the ladies. Gentlemen, our turn. Gentlemen, we are called to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. 
That means many, many things. One of the things it means is that it is our responsibility and our joy to plan the date night. Put some thought into it. Plan with your wife in mind. What would she enjoy? Probably not going to Lowe's. <laughs> date night is not for picking up some extra tools. Date night is not for watching the game. Not unless your wife is really into that. Prioritize her. What would she enjoy? If there are dinner reservations required, you make them. Don't hop in the car with no plan. Where do you want to go tonight, babe? Put some thought into it. It shows that you prioritize your wife. Fight for her. I know some of you are thinking, man, our schedules are just too busy. There's no way. We couldn't do one night a week. If you're thinking that, you have problems already. You're committed to too much. If you can't be fully present with your spouse one night a week, you need to begin to say no to some other things in your life. Even if that is volunteering in the church. You got my permission to say no to a ministry in the church if you don't even have one night a week that you as a couple can spend together. Is that important? Look, there's only one place where you are irreplaceable, and that's at home. Somebody else can do that job here. Somebody else can do that job in your office where you work. You're irreplaceable at home. Nobody else can be you but you there. Come on. So, let me close the series like this. Never, never, never stop fighting for your marriage. Never stop valuing romance. Never stop working on your sex life. How's that for a final line for the series? Yeah? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I know at times this morning, we've been uncomfortable in different ways. Sometimes we need to be uncomfortable. We need to be convicted of our sin. We need to be reminded of the gospel. That Lord Jesus, you have died for our sins in our place. That includes our sexual sins. When we confess those sins to you, you truly do cleanse us. You make us new. My prayer this morning, for the young people in the room, those who are not married, that you will keep them strong. Help them to see that their sex drive is a good thing. You've given them that to drive them toward marriage. In the meantime, keep them strong. Show them the accountability structures they need to have in place in their lives. For the married couples, God, I know that many are struggling in many different ways here. For some of us, pornography is a very real problem right now. Give husbands and wives the strength to talk about it to be honest, to confess their failures, their mistakes, to listen to each other. For some of us, maybe pornography is not the problem, but we're just too busy. We're committed to other things we've forgotten. We've forgotten how to be fully present with our spouse. Help us to have the conversations we need to have there begin to restructure our weeks, our budgets, our priorities. Fight for our marriage. 
God, we know that you are with us. Your spirit lives within us, all of us who are your people. By your spirit, we have hope. Change can happen. Relationships can be healed. We pray for your healing power to be at work now, this day, and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.